Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the podcast Invested. Invested. Also known as the Invested Podcast. Invested, colon, the rule one podcast. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and we are going to talk today about valuation, how you figure out how to figure out what a business is worth. And we started last time into the idea that you can buy a, a little house to rent out and it's a business and you value it based on how much cash flow you're getting out, how much the big check you're going to have at the end of the year for yourself. And then um, you're going to basically assume that that check is going to represent 10% of the price you paid for the thing. Well, wait, you assume that it's, isn't that just how you, that's how you're going to buy it. That's how you decide how much you would buy it for. Right. Of okay. course, you're going to try to get it cheaper than that. Okay. In which case your return, if you pay less, remember that $5,000 thing we were talking about? Yeah, so the $5,000 thing is we've been talking about the lemonade stand for mm -hmm. a while. We're mm -hmm. on the valuation train. Right. We are And on it. the We're lemonade not... stand is being compared to owning real estate and renting it out. Right. And we have switched now. The lemonade stand got bigger. It got a lot bigger. <laughs> With multiple lemonade it used stands. To be, it used to be giving us $5 of profit, mm -hmm. $5 of well, owner cash owner flow. Cash flow. Well, owner earnings. And money you have in your pocket at the end of the year. Yeah. Right. Why, why, does, why is like saying that that's profit a bad thing? Why does that confuse it people wouldn't who know be, things it about wouldn't, accounting? It wouldn't be at all if we didn't have accrual accounting. But there's two forms of accounting. There's the kind you have with your checkbook that most people use, which is called cash accounting. And that's actually cash in, cash out. Yeah. In which case, owner earnings and profit are the same thing. Okay. But accrual accounting assumes all kinds of crazy stuff, like you get to call it a sale even though you didn't get any money. Yeah, so that's for companies where like you get a, you make a sale, but then the money doesn't come in until 60 days later, but you can still count it on the books as though the money's come in. Right. Which means you're like accruing it over time. Exactly. Okay. And that leads to these So profit weird in that context things. means something different than what's actually in your bank Exactly. Account. So it. your profit might be good and your your actual cash might be bad. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. I got it. Good. Cool. Good. Um, okay. So we had $5 of owner cash flow in the lemonade stand. And then, we, and then we started talking about because in real world, the real estate would have conceivably $5,000 yeah, of owner cash flow. Right. And then we made the lemonade stand have <laughs> Then we made the lemonade have $5,000 of that. And I think that's roughly where we ended up. We did. And we were talking about um, the viability of having a 10% cap rate. I just, I want to say CapEx, but that's not right. Right, that's not 10 right. 10% cap rate. Yep, it's just one of those things Which you got to memorize. Which means a 10% return on your money. Exactly. It means if you put up $100,000 for a piece of real estate and you bought it with a 10 cap, that means you're getting a 10% return on your 100,000. And for all of you real estate people, I know we are not including mortgages or anything like that. And you don't include mortgages when you're looking at cap rates, you just assume it's all cash, all right? This keeps the world apples to apples. So there's no lending fees no, or, or when you interest borrow, or any of that stuff included in this right. calculation. The, the justification is that when you borrow money, you're starting to incur leverage and that, that can um, make you have a larger cash on cash return. Um, but in order to compare one thing to another thing across lots of different opportunities and businesses, 
we want to make it apples to apples. So just strip yes. out all of the loans and yeah. just cash. It's just all cash. And then we can say, oh, this has got a 10 cap. That one's got a 12. Right. So with capitalization rates, it's just the rate of return you're getting on the money you paid for this thing. And the higher the capitalization rate, the more money you're making. So a 16 cool. cap is a lot better than a 12 cap, which is better than a 10 cap. And we also said that in professional real estate, real estate investment trusts, where they're buying very large projects, $100 million projects, bigger, mm -hmm. they're buying those from professionals who are not likely to slip up and give you a 10 cap rate. <laughs> those mistakes happen with amateur investors who don't know how to market their property and don't know how to clean it up, don't know how to maximize it. Or they also happen with banks getting into trouble and having to dump properties that, and you, so you get banks that are real estate owned and buy them out of foreclosure or buy them on the courtroom steps. You definitely can get these kind of cap rates and better. Yeah, I mean, stuff happens. Right. It's, it's essentially the same as what you say about public companies, like events happen and that drives the price down, but that doesn't necessarily mean the underlying value is, uh, is gone. I think you're making an incredibly key point. That's really the essence of great investing. Awesome. You've just, you it just saw of, it. It seemed kind of obvious to me. So somebody goes through a divorce. Business to real estate comparison. I know. It's really starting to be a little clearer that somebody goes through a divorce and they're at each other and nobody wants to, you know, take their money and make the house payments. So the house goes into foreclosure and the family just is having this trauma. And so they, they're not making their payment. Or somebody loses a job that goes on top of the divorce and all the things are happening. These are events that happen in life every day. Yeah. And as a result of those kinds of events, things go on sale. Yeah, I People mean, that makes sense. People just want to dump it. Yeah. Get, get rid of this for me. I think that's actually a really useful way to explain events because that's something we can all relate to, right? Like yeah. you're, you're saddled with this mortgage and then something bad happens, you lose your job. And all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, the, the house hasn't changed, but you can't actually make the payments anymore. So hopefully you can sell it for what it is worth on the market let's assume that's enough, but maybe you have to sell it really quickly because of something happening in your family. And so you take less than you otherwise could get. Perfect. Exactly right. And as a result, somebody gets a bargain. Yeah. Right. And the key is to be able to recognize and, when you're getting it. And you get the money that you need. And you get the money so you need. that's why you would sell. It's a, it's a fair trade. Which is what you were just, you were saying, um, I think last episode about like, why would anyone sell a business that's, uh, that's giving off a million dollars a year for the rest of their life. They don't have to do much for it. You said somebody else was running it. Yep. Well, the reason you would do that is because, first of all, there is some risk to it. But secondly, it's sometimes, depending on your circumstances, more valuable to have a chunk of money all at once. Yep, that's right. So the, the amazing thing here, I think, that when, when we start to look at the stock market is that knowing that this stuff happens in the world all of the time, where people put things on sale. There's nothing wrong with the underlying business. It's just that person is going through an emotion of trauma of some sort, and they put it on sale. We all know that that happens. It's happened almost to all of us at one time or another in our lives. And yet these academics make the assumption that it would no, never but, happen in the stock market. But I have to change that a little bit because it's not, it's not just, oh, like something emotional happened. No, this is a real, actual financially affecting event that occurs. True. Like losing your job is, is emotional, but it's also financial. True. And I, I, I think you're making a good point. I, I'll dial that back because um, 
it isn't, it, it, I mean, people don't let their house get foreclosed on out of emotion. Exactly. Now, there and may be a lot of emotion around like, that. You always use the T-shirt company and cotton prices in 2011 going down with the Arab Spring. Right. Uh, yes, that's, you know, emotionally... Uh, Scary. Turmoiling. But it's also just like, oh, that's happening. Like, that's just that's just happening. That's happening. And that's financial. Right. And cotton prices are down. So in a sense, you could say... High, no, sorry, they're, they went up. They yeah. went down. Um, so somebody's got... Somebody's got a house and they're letting it go to foreclosure because something happened. Right. Right. I mean, an event so yes, happened. like there are. Emo- I just don't want to like put it all on. Yeah, you're making a oh, really good. Oh, it's so point. emotional. We're all just emotional creatures. I guess I'm just thinking of the emotion that gets involved in the event. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of fear that gets going there, but that's not what's really driving it. It's exactly. like you can't figure out how to get out of this situation um, without selling this house, without having the house go to foreclosure, without dumping this stock. There's. From where I'm sitting and what I'm, my priorities are, I cannot stay with this company because if I do, I know it's going down. It's going to hurt my track record. Exactly. And that's emotional. It's emotional. But it's also but it's rational. Rational. <laughs> yeah. And so what the academics are missing is that different players in the market have different lengths of time uh, to become fearful, you know? So Yeah. And, to become, and different um, incentives and different pressures. Yep. So let's come back. Okay. We wandered off slightly there to our 10 cap. And we want to have a real basic understanding of why that's a good place to be. So I'm going to start by saying that it's a good place to be. This is an argument. um, I'm sure there's a name for it. I'm basically arguing that I'm right by authority. Love it. It's good. It sounds like fascist. It does. It would be like I'm appealing to the authority. So, and I'm, the authority I'm appealing to is Warren Buffett, who bought a, <laughs> the least fascist person, least ever. fascist guy in the world, who who bought a building next to or near NYU in New York in the 1990s, and he talked about what he paid for it, and what he paid for it um, was a 10 cap, which I think is kind of important to know. If okay, Warren the, Buffett is wording. buying a building at a 10 capitalization rate. That might be a clue. Okay, but that wording makes no sense to me. You just said it in two different ways. Okay, go. First, you said he bought it at a 10 cap. Mm -hmm. Then you said he's getting a 10 cap. So getting a 10 cap makes sense to me because you're getting 10% on your money. Right. How do you buy something at a 10 cap? Like, What does that have to do with... You're basically saying I'm I'm buying it so that I'm getting a ten percent return. You're buying it Those so that deal, so I that see. I get that. So he's saying what I paid for it will get me a ten cap rate. Yep. Okay. Yep. And I'm I'm and here's the key thing, is that Buffett bought this with a ten percent return on the cash that he paid for the building, no loans, nothing, just pay the cash for the building. He got a ten percent return, just the way it was when he bought it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. You know, so you, no, uh, what were we calling that? Like growth? Didn't factor growth, in any growth, growth expectations. Capital expenditures. Right. So all no of that. No growth capital expenditures. No, no growth capital expenditures going on here at all. Um, and he's still, he's getting this 10% return. So that's really breathtaking for a large project, right? In New York City, that's a, that's a very, very high cap rate. You know, everybody would like to have a 10% return on the rents just the way they are very hard to do. How could Buffett do that? And the way he did it was simply consider the building the way he considers every business he buys, 
just wait until there's an event. Wait until something has put this on sale. Mm -hmm. And the thing that put this one on sale is the savings and loans started having terrible trouble. They'd over lent and the government started foreclosing on, on savings and loans institutions and the government ended up with a bunch of real estate. And then the government does what governments do, which is to try to sell it at a reasonable price and get everybody out as much money as they can. And then sometimes they just, on some build, buildings, can't do it. Nobody wants it at a reasonable price from their point of view, a reasonable price. And so finally they get to the place where somebody just says, look, just get rid of it for whatever you can get. This pink elephant building, whatever. This particular building, I think, was 75% rented up with one tenant who had a, a lease at $5 a square foot in a $75 market. That's insane. Insane lease. Like, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was the university. I don't know. It was right by NYU. You know, sometimes. Sure. Yeah. So somehow they'd gotten that $5 rent and it was going to last them for nine years. So Buffett would not be able to raise rents for nine years, which was enough to keep most people out of the deal. Yeah, I mean, you'd, it would be hard to get a loan or have any kind of investment in something that with, with that long of a time horizon. Yep. Most people would be like, I'm just not interested. And that's when deed was the case. Most people weren't. And so finally, this organization, the government that controlled this, finally said, wow, you know, we're just going to have to take the best deal we can. And Buffett then came in with no other bidders and said, I will buy this at a price that reflects a 10% return to me, cash on cash. So let's just figure it out. And they figured out their rent. Let's say the rent was $5,000, in which case he can buy the building for $50,000. Or if the rent was $50,000, he buys the building for $5 million. So it's just, he's just putting a pencil to it and say that it's, I know it's suboptimal. I know that the rents are not as good as they could be. Um, but if I keep it and getting a 10% return for the next nine years or whatever, that's okay with me. Yeah, that all makes total sense. The obvious thing that he has over anybody else is that he didn't have investors to worry about and he didn't have leverage to worry about and he didn't have to go get a loan. He was able to do, I mean, clearly this, if it's really that obvious that they would have just taken whatever equals a 10% cap rate, there would have been a bunch of people trying to do it. So he had something that the other people didn't have, which I'm gonna say is cash. I think you're right, but there's a. I, I'm but just going to push back a, a little bit. There's a lot of people who had cash. That's right. So how on earth does Warren Buffett just walk into this situation? He doesn't even live in New York, and discover this building that for some reason nobody else wants. Well, in this case, it was a pretty big building, and he had some friends who live in New York, and they called him, and said, "Hey, you want in on this deal?" Okay. Right. So he partnered up with some guys who knew that the deal was there. Now. Why didn't somebody else? Why didn't Donald Trump go and get it? Why didn't all well, these other guys do it? He's such a genius, apparently. He would he's, have. Well, he it has, would have been the best building He ever. has the best buildings in he New has York. The best this was not one of the best buildings, apparently. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's why. <laughs> so that's why. <laughs> Esoteric consideration. And Donald, if you're listening to this, I'm just teasing. I actually like Donald Trump very much. I, I've, I've met him and he's a really, and I've known people that worked with him quite a long time. He's a guy of amazing integrity. He does what he says he is going to do. So let's not tease him too badly here. So I will say no comment. Okay, no comment. Um, so we, we've got Buffett setting criteria for us that we have this building and he got access to it because by then, by the time it got around to where they're willing to take this bid, other people had bid these low prices and they'd said no. 
Oh. Right? Now, I've been through that personally. Melissa and I have gone through that bidding on a, on a building, on a building, on a building. And it took two years before we finally got it at the price we wanted. Mm-hmm. And in the interim, they took any offers they could get their hands on. They just weren't ready to deal. And by the time they were, we were the only bidders left standing. Okay. So he had people in New York who were handling the deal. And basically, he just slid in there and yep. had the right timing. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. It's good to be Warren Buffett. It is. And all of those things also accrue to us. It's like we have friends and they can say, oh, you're an investor. I've got a deal. In fact, I can promise you that you will have more of those being offered to you than you want once you get into this game. Well, again, I'll say it again. He had cash. And you have cash. Well, once you start investing in some stuff, you run out of cash, right? Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. But no, no, no. You do run out of cash because you load up the truck when you get the opportunity. Yeah. But I wrote about this in, in uh, Payback Time where you're essentially um, doing this as a part-time thing most people do, right? They're, very part-time. Yeah, very part-time. And you have a job. And that job pays money. And you take a piece of that money out on a regular basis and you put it into your account to be invested you're doing the same thing Buffett does. He has companies that produce cash flow. And over the years, that cash flow has gotten really large. But initially, it wasn't. And just like that for you, it's going to be yeah. small at first. And then you apply more capital over time. It's hard to get started, though. I will say that. It's hard. I know we're breaking from valuation, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I am just need to think a little more about this getting started thing. A friend of mine just emailed me that she was listening to our podcast, and, uh, and she said she was sitting there with a completely filthy house debating if she should clean her house or if she should spend time learning to invest while surrounded by filth. <laughs> <laughs> That was an excellent encapsulation of the decisions we all make every day. Absolutely. That's really quite good. What did you tell her? What? I haven't responded yet. Oh, what are you going to tell her? <laughs> I think she should partially clean and partially <laughs> listen to our podcast while she cleans, probably. I mean, maybe so. You know, one of the funny things about life is We that all have to clean at some point. I know. I'll tell you, though. One of the strange things about life is that your life expands to take up the time that you have. Gosh, that's true. That's true. You know? Well, it just makes you... It makes do, you, you, do you remember when you weren't working 80 hours a week? Yes. You were very busy. I do remember that. You are very busy. Yeah, but you know, you can, you can say, like, you can feel what's a hobby and what's, what's not. You can feel what's optional and what's not. Yeah. Cleaning your house on the regular, not optional. Right. You got to do that. That's just how it is. You got to do that. You know? But I, honestly, there, you, you're all, everybody listening, you're going to have to admit it. You have more time than you admit you do because we can burn up time. Even when we're working a stupid amount of hours, well, I will say your sister Elena and you, when you're working this whole thing uh, in law and in medicine, that, okay, there's times when you don't have any time. Yeah, there are definitely times when you don't have any time. And then there are times when you have more time. So anyway, right. <laughs> just to, but that's actually what I really like about our podcast is that you can listen to it while doing something else like cleaning your house or working out or whatever, you know, the thing is that you need to do that uh, would be preempted maybe by investing research. So. Yep. Well, it's, let's go it's back to... It's a little to, bit easier than reading a book or watching a video or... True. Whatever. True. Yeah. Okay. So back, back to, to the, valuation. Back to learning something. So one of the things that we're working at right now is why is a 10 cap a good price to pay 
for a piece of real estate. And we now know that we're going to appeal to authority and say, well, if Warren Buffett does it at a 10 cap, that's probably good enough for us. But I want you to pay attention to one thing about the way he did it. It was a sub-optimized building. The rents were not as high as they should be. Okay. Okay. So let's add that to our criteria for a 10 cap in terms of Buffett's view of it. He's willing to take a 10% return knowing that down the road, this return is almost certainly going to go up. Are you saying that 10% is a crappy return to Warren Buffett? I'm saying it's a minimal return and that, <laughs> I know, it's pretty good, but it's a minimal return. And and the key thing is that it is suboptimal. So it's not so much even the problem being minimal. The problem is that if it's not suboptimal, then there's always the question, is the rent the correct rent? Oh, okay. Are you saying that if it were optimal, if they, if he, if he had been getting market rates on rent, there's not much higher to go? There's no, there's nowhere higher to go, and there might be downward to go. Yeah, sure. Whereas when he's already starting way down, way down there, the there's no downward to go. To go. Exactly. Manesh Prabhupada calls that idea a free lottery ticket. Mm. You got no down. It's just up. You don't know how much up. You might win five dollars. You might win fifty million, but. It's just up. That's the direction. And so in this particular example, Buffett is buying this building, which is sub-optimized, and he knows that nine years from now, it's a big time all up. And the reason he knows that is because if there's an intrinsic characteristic about this building, which gives it durable competitive advantage. And that is its location is right next to NYU. Mm -hmm. And NYU has been around for a long, long time, and it's going to continue to be around. And that means those buildings will continue to be occupied by people who want to buy stuff. And therefore, this commercial building is going to have a point to be in there. Yeah, so, the neighborhood's not going to fall into disrepair. Right. So let's... Beyond, beyond much. <laughs> so, so swinging all the way back to the beginning is, are we capable of understanding a building there by NYU? Yes. Okay. Now, does it have an intrinsic characteristic that gives it a moat, a durable competitive advantage? Yes, it's location, right? In real estate, it's location, location, location. Next, does it have good management? Oh, I'm the manager. Okay, good management. Next, does it have a margin of safety? Am I buying it at a price where I know in the future the price will be more? Mm -hmm. And that's relative to the, yes. to the owner's cash flow. Okay, got that. Pretty and, simple. And he chose 10% as he his 10%. minimum threshold yep. rate of return. So essentially here you have a government agency saying, somebody please just take this out of our misery. And Buffett comes in at a price, which no doubt they had to think about. And he said, okay, this is good enough for me. Hopefully it's good enough for that agency to, to part with it. Let's make a deal at 10. And they did. Okay. All right. Ready for another example? Okay, so we're compiling data points mm -hmm. of based times, on authority. Based on authority, right? Of times of that people have chosen a ten percent rate of return. Right. So the next one as is as a, a minimal suboptimal situation. Right. That's very key. Okay. So the next one is um, a farm that Buffett bought in the nineteen eighties, um, and he bought it at a ten cap. So now this is interesting because we're moving away from real estate where it uses capitalization rates all the time. People think in terms of cap rates into businesses where they don't think in terms of cap rates so much. Farmers don't think in terms of cap rates at all. They think of profit, hmm. right? But Buffett's still thinking in terms of cap rates. 
So he's thinking, what do I want on the cash that I put into this deal? That's a cap rate in real estate. It's return on investment, other return places, on right? Investment. So I want a 10% return on investment, which is a 10 cap. All right, so what deal did he, was he willing to do in a farm? The deal he wanted to do was based on um, the fact that farms had gotten really, really highly priced in the late 1970s with a lot of inflation and corn prices kept going up. And then corn prices dropped like a brick. Farmers had over leveraged the farms with loans. The banks that had given them the loans failed, unlike Bank of America, Citigroup, you know, who should have failed. <laughs> These little local banks failed. No one rescued them, right? The, mm -hmm. the earth didn't stop spinning. Mm -hmm. And the government came in, took control of the banks, covered the, the uh, banks' uh, subscribers' money, and took over the farms. Okay, so now the, the government takes over the farm. Is it going to run it as good as the farmer would? No. no. So the farm, let's say in this particular case, went from 120 bushels an acre to 80 bushels an acre, and Buffett gets to see that it did that. It used to be this big, and then it went to that big on corn and soybeans. He also you sees, might even say it's suboptimal. <laughs> you might. <laughs> you might see where I'm going here. And also the price of corn had dropped like a brick. I really like that word. Suboptimal is pretty cool. So the price of corn in 1980 had fallen back to what it was in 1948. Okay, so now we got corn at a pretty historical decades low price. And we have farms, uh, production in this particular farm dropped by 30% because it's not being carefully managed. So Buffett goes in and says, I'll buy that farm, and here's what I'll pay for it. If the farm is producing $5,000, <laughs> I will buy it for how much? $50,000. $50,000. 10 cap, okay? So that's exactly what he did. He bought the farm at a 10 cap. In other words, it's whatever is producing net after all the expenses, that he could put in his pocket, he was willing to have that be a 10% return on what he paid for it. That's what he offered. There's no way they would have taken that deal, except they were loaded up for years with real estate they were trying to unload, with farms they were trying to get out of. Everybody became a, a seller. The banks were loaded. You know, it was just nightmare time. Huge event, right? A global macro change that created, you know, rational people had to sell stuff because they couldn't afford to keep it going. And Buffett stepped in. He says he's stepping in when there's fear. So granted that it's rational to get rid of your farm, but believe me, when you're doing that, there's a lot of fear about the future. Oh, of course. So there's, a, there's an element there that there's fear of the future that's kicking in here. And Buffett identifies that as a key indicator that there's something that you mm. could step in and buy maybe. Mm. And so there's two deals we've done now. One's, both involving governmental intervention. Yeah, both involving governmental and intervention. And then years of them not being able to unload it for the price they want. Right. And being there at the right time. Right. So that goes back to a point we've made many times, which is the Charlie Munger saying, you don't make money when you buy and you don't make money when you sell. <laughs> you make money because you can wait. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing truer. And the beauty of teaching all you guys this stuff is that you can wait. You don't have anybody with a gun at your head who's put their money with you telling you, you better go out and make me great money this year. You just got you. It's your money. And maybe you're tired of having fund managers and mutual funds make it go down by 40% or have it go down by 40% and just tell you the only thing you can do is wait, you know, and just sit there and wait for it to come back. Maybe they're right. 
Well, the only thing you can do once it goes down like that is to wait for it to come back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so maybe we want to do things a little differently here and yeah. not be beholden to something we don't know the value of. Oh, I was going to make this point, Daniel, that point? I'm starting to argue. What point? Here it is. That it isn't investing to put your money in mutual funds and indexes. Is it speculation? It's speculation. Don't you remember we had a big argument about investing versus I speculation? Know. So I just want to come back to that just briefly and say that I'm continuing to push this boulder up the hill against all <laughs> educators who would call many kinds of things investing. I've gotten even more radical since I talked to you. Do tell. Um, I'm just thinking there's, uh, there isn't any other kind of thing that's investing other than doing, it to what, doing what we do. This is investing. Everything else, including putting your money long-term in the stock market, is speculation. And the, dis and the distinction here is that when you buy things that you understand um, and that have a durable competitive advantage with good management and you're buying them on sale, you have a high degree of certainty you're going to make money. When you're putting your money into something and you don't know what the value is, you don't understand the investment at all, you have no idea if it's on sale or overpriced, you're speculating by definition. Well you just drew, okay, we're coming back to valuation, and mm -hmm. I'm just going to say mm -hmm. that you created two extremely separate ends of a spectrum, and there is a lot of space in that spectrum which you didn't acknowledge at all. Okay, and I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> we're just gonna move on, moving on. <laughs> so I wanted, I wanted to move from this 10 cap on real estate to 10 cap on a farm. Let's talk about 10 cap from a bond. Okay. Okay. So what would so ten cap be on a bond? Loan. Bonds alone. And let's say that Argentina needs money. Sure. And so they say, Danielle, would you lend us fifty thousand dollars? And I would say, How much are you gonna give me? And they'd say, ten percent. And I'd say, Are you suboptimal? <laughs> <laughs> and they'd say, they say are you dare, how dare you accuse my country of being suboptimal we are pretty suboptimal right now <laughs> <laughs> we behind closed doors this is off the record we're feeling a little suboptimal and that's why we're going to give you 10% and I'd be like cool okay so here's the deal that I wanted to bring up when you go after a 10% yield in a bond which is also known as a 10 cap mm-hmm you are stepping into um, some degree of risk, substantially more risk than you'd be taking if you lent the federal government that same amount of money and got a 2% return or a 2% yield or a two cap, which is what they're offering to you right now on a 10-year T-bill, a okay. two cap. Huh. So if you go to Argentina and they offer you a 10 cap, 10% return, there's a reason. And that is because Argentina has a tendency to default on its bonds. <laughs> Right? Yeah. And that is a lot of risk that you won't get paid. So there's there's the risk. So in bonds... You'd almost say risk equals volatility. You would say risk equals... Well, you'd say risk and volatility are risk and fear or ultimately risk and reward are related. Yeah, maybe that's what we should be talking about is risk and reward instead of risk and volatility. Sure. And the reason so many people tell you that... You shouldn't be investing on your own picking out individual companies is because their understanding of risk is that risk is volatility. Yeah. And, you know, obviously you're having to buy more volatility if the, if, if the real estate you're buying, nobody else wants 
right? It's cheap. It fell a long way from where it would have been if it was optimized. So, it, you know, the way they set up the definition of risk and the, the reward ratio is sort of meant to lead you to just one conclusion, and that is risk and reward are related, and necessarily so. You can't get a higher return without taking more risk. But we've just talked about lots of examples where Buffett is getting a very high rate of return with lower risk than he'd be taking if he went and bought the building 20 years earlier. We have, and that's what makes your Argentina example really interesting, because in those two real estate examples, the whole point was this is not a purchase that's going to go to zero. This is a purchase that has basically hit bottom for a bunch of years, so it's been proven. This is pretty much the bottom. Yeah, maybe there could be like an explosion or something, and that's how it would go to zero. But otherwise, it's probably going to go back up to its typically normal level. Right. Whereas Argentina could go to zero. Right. Like that's happened. Right. Or, you know, remember Greece has all these bonds out there. And they went to zero. Yeah. So it's a different kind of investment. Or almost went to zero. Yeah. And so... Well, but we're going to we're going to put all these kinds of investments, which are considered very different from each other. We're going to put them all in the same playing field and we're going to treat them the same way. We're going to say that it's true that in bonds, you probably have to take more risk to get a higher reward. Um, But it's not true in businesses. And so an equity bond is a unique kind of bond that we started talking about a while back where you're getting this wonderful yield, 10 percent yield without any need whatsoever to increase rents, to do something magic to the building, to fix the lemonade stand, whatever. You don't have to do anything. It just is running by itself. Yeah. Yeah, Right? So the components of an equity bond are, number one, you have to understand the business. Otherwise, you won't know for sure if it's an equity bond situation. And what makes it an equity bond situation is the next piece that Charlie taught us, which is, it must have an intrinsic characteristic that makes it durable. Which is something that a, a bond that a country gives may not have. Argentina may not have that. Yeah. I mean, Greece may not have that. and Which is why we're not talking about investing in bonds right now. Right on. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you, yeah. you get this intrinsic characteristic. Yeah, that's characteristic. really, really interesting, actually. Because you, every now and then somebody mentions bonds to me. And I go, ugh, I don't really know anything about them. I know they're kind of this, some people say they're risky. Some people say they're not risky. Like it depends on what you buy and blah, blah, blah. So this is making more sense to me now that like a bond is not something that automatically gives off a cash flow the way a business does. So it doesn't have as much of an intrinsic characteristic providing that, that cash flow. That's a very, very good point. Am I way off on this one? Even as I'm saying it, I'm wondering if I'm way off. Not so far off. But there's something, there's some, there's some quality to a bond that's different than, um, you know, I mean, besides that they're inherently completely different things, there's some quality that's different to a bond than a business um, when when I'm looking at it using Charlie's four principles. Yes, there is. um, If the bond isn't coming from a business. And many bonds do. Oh, okay. I got it. Right? So, so when we, people talk about investing in bonds, they could be investing in bonds from companies. Yes. Oh, and, and that's so, a whole different thing. Yeah. No, I was thinking about like country bonds. And by the way, just, National I mean, bonds. just to give you a heads up out there, you guys, um, there may be a real problem coming down the road with exchange traded funds that are giving off high yields, like 6% or so, um, that are invested in 
thinly traded corporate bonds. If it, I mean, the, the problem could be that, you know, you mentioned that the last company time that's, with the robo-advisor, yeah. not last time, but a few podcasts ago with the, ro- the robo-advisor. Yeah, so the ETF takes your, your $10,000 and it goes out and he buys kind of illiquid corporate bonds that didn't really have a market until the ETF showed up. And now it pays that money. And let's say you want to exit the ETF along with virtually everybody else in the country for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, now they've got to find somebody to buy those bonds from them and there's no market in which case your ETF goes down like a brick. And that's that's a warning, I'm just saying. This is not investment advice, correct? No, this is not investment advice. This is, this is suggesting that there's a potential, if, first watch the big short and <laughs> recognize that these guys were that, that figured it out were looking at the bonds that were underlying the bond, excuse me, they were looking at the mortgages that were underlying the bond mm-hmm. And realizing that the mortgages were total crap and the bond was being rated AAA. Okay? And so that's where they started to realize this thing can't last. What I'm going to suggest to you, if you're invested in an ETF bond fund and you don't know what those bonds are invested in, what that money's invested in, what corporate bonds you're in, you may find yourself in equally crap bonds. And that stuff can go down. When there's a run on the bank, there's no buyers for that stuff. And when that goes down, so does your ETF. I'm not saying it will, but I'm saying I'm not the only guy talking about this. So hmm. pay attention to that. Yeah. That you're speculating. <laughs> when you put your money into stuff you don't understand. And you shouldn't be shocked if you lose it. I think I'm going to end right there on that really motivational Ooh. note. Yeah, that's a downer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So... Um, all right, We're so, a long way from done with value. Oh more value. Gosh. More value. Dad. More cowbell. Dad, hmm. this is our 50-second podcast. Oh, my gosh. We're the 50-second podcast. That means we've done a whole year of podcasts in podcasts, if not time. Yes, in podcast time. In podcast time. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. That's really amazing. This you know? has been really I, awesome. I don't know that we really thought how long we could do this without running around and well, running out of things to talk about. Yeah, that's true. I did. I definitely thought we would run out of things to talk about really quickly. I mean, when we start off with something like Charlie Munger's four points and he says, you know, what else is there to talk about the rest of the semester? You're already <laughs> thinking, geez, maybe we're going to run out of stuff to and talk about. I remember about. we did, I think we did five or six on those. And I was like, oh my gosh, we stretched that out like crazy. <laughs> like what else is there to talk about now that we've talked about Charlie's four principles in extreme detail? There's nothing else to say. But you know what? In this one instance, I think Charlie was being a little facetious. I think he was too. I'm just going to hazard a guess. I think he was too. I, there's a quote that Charlie said that he was in a, being interviewed by a foreign correspondent. And he said, look, I've been around you for a while now, Mr. Munger, and you don't seem smart enough to be making the kind of money you're making. <laughs> can you can we tell you can you tell me what you think about that? And Charlie said, well, I'm not trying to be smarter than anybody else. I'm just trying to be a little less idiotic. <laughs> So there's a lot Ouch. to unwind in this sort of less idiotic thing that we're going through. And that's really us. I mean, we're not geniuses. We're not. We're just ordinary people. And we're trying to unravel for you guys how and, we've and come to And for me, frankly, that. like this is not an, an altruistic endeavor for me. It's true. This is for my daughter. I'm doing this for myself. This. Yeah. And I'm doing it for you. Because <laughs> I love you, honey. That's very sweet. I, I love, love you, you too. 
Well, thanks for being there for our podcast year, 52. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we hope we have many more years just like it. We hope you enjoy this, you guys. Send in your questions. We'll try to take them on, on, the, on the podcast one of these days. Um, we're not going to be able to respond to them individually. But, um, you know, we do do a, a, a workshop for three days. And, and I'd love to have you guys come out to it. If you haven't already thought about doing that, come see us in Atlanta and we will uh, be happy to entertain any questions you have right there live for three days. So go to investedpodcast.com. Check that out. Yep. Send questions to questions at investedpodcast.com. And thank you so much for listening yep. and making this so fun it's for really us. Really fun for us. I guess until the next time, time All to right. go play. Huh? Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.